Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. Glad that you've come back this week if you're a regular viewer, that you've come back for more of your questions and our answers from the Bible. Uh, we're happy to have you today. If you're a first-time viewer, let me just explain briefly what we do here. Uh, we try to help people know their Bible a little bit better, and we do it a little differently than most religious TV programs. Uh, many religious TV programs are uh, a sermon or a, a lesson or something that you need to hear according to the TV program. Uh, we go the other direction and wonder what you would like to know. So we ask you to ask questions, and we'll try to find answers for you. There's a phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. Use those anytime. Give us a question, and we get questions about specific verses, about uh, topics, about doctrines. Uh, we get questions about life. We get questions about current events. Uh, what's the Bible say about that? So we try to find Bible answers to whatever's on your mind, and you end up directing this program, and we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. I'm Steve Tandy, and my two partners over here are Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. And Jeff Martin's back. Hi, Jeff. Morning, Steve. Glad you guys are here, and uh, got some good ones coming up today, but uh, long-time viewers know they always get one first. So here's your question for the day. Uh, see if you know your Bible a little bit. What's the longest chapter in the Bible? And we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program and uh, see if you know what the longest chapter is in the Bible. All right, looks like Toby drew number one, yep. so get us going here, Toby. Okay, I have a question about the apostles. All 12 of the apostles were men. Why didn't Jesus ask any women? Well, um, I, my simple answer to that is it was Jesus' call to make. As a Jewish rabbi, uh, they had the uh, privilege and the right of choosing those students that they wanted to follow them. Uh, rabbis, students known as disciples, were people that would walk with him and travel with him, go with him, uh, sit at his feet, uh, help him with different things. And I think that most, I mean, the rabbis were men, they would have... Uh, seemed very natural to me that they would have mostly chosen men for that role, although I couldn't uh, nail that down 100%. Jesus had that call, and I think there's a, a lot of good reasons for that. Now, this does not mean that Jesus did not have women as part of his ministry and did not associate with women. In fact, uh, Jesus associated with a lot of women in different uh, parts of life. There were women that traveled with them. Uh, so, my, my answer to that is that was Jesus' decision, and of course he always makes the right decision. And so I think uh, that would have been uh, whatever his judgments were, we can trust that they were uh, the right ones. 
Um, but we, as we look through the ministry of Jesus, I mean, certainly um, Jesus was born. He was the seed of woman. His mother, Mary, had great influence and impact in his life and in his ministry. Uh, the, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman is a well-known story about here's a woman who had been rejected. He was uh, having a conversation with her. And that conversation led to a whole lot of Samaritan people coming to learn about Jesus. Uh, there's uh, stories of women that uh, were caught in adultery, The women, uh, stories of women who had poor reputations, uh, who were known as sinful women, and who Jesus... Uh, who he redeemed them. He uh, brought them out of that. Um, stories of women being healed. Um, and so, of course, probably the best known story of women in, uh, that I can think of is the Sunday morning when he rose. Uh, it was Mary and Mary Magdalene traveling to the tomb to prepare the body. They were the ones who first saw and interacted with. We read of that story in uh, John chapter 20 and Matthew <coughs> chapter 28. Um, so uh, women had a, lo- a, a lot of involvement with Jesus' ministry, but yes, the, the apostles that Jesus called were all men, and you can look at, find their names in Matthew chapter 10 and in other places as well. So uh, that's my answer. Okay, right. Jeff, what's, uh, help this lady out. Yeah, this one's actually <laughs> close to my heart because I have a 9-year-old and an 11-year-old. So uh, this uh, viewer asks, my 9-year-old asked, who created God? I tried to explain it, but think I just confused him more. (laughs) How would you explain it to a child? And this is a great question, but it's a very hard question to answer. Um, When I was having this conversation with my kids, uh, I gave the simple answer of no one created God, which of course led to a follow-up of several more questions. So I'm right there with you. Um, But this is some of the things that I, I discuss with my children. First of all, you can tell them that everything... Uh, outside of nature obviously has a creator. So everything man-made uh, has been made. We wouldn't expect a car or a pair of pants or any, even something as simple as a sheet of paper to come out of thin air. And they'll understand that as a nine-year-old. Um, and the same thing uh, is to be said for creation, for the natural world around us. It had to have a creator, or in the very least, something needed to trigger that creation. Uh, That's something we can all understand. So if we continue to go back to the very beginning in Genesis to the first thing that was ever created, we realize eventually that it had to be created by something that always was. And for us, that's the great I am. That's God. That's the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, One of the verses you can show them, because a a great way to answer kids is from the Bible, One of the verses you can show them is Psalm 90, verse 2. So let's look at that. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, That's a great verse to show uh, a nine-year-old. God is the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. And we can grasp that uh, because we have a beginning and an end. But when you get to the idea that God is also without beginning and without end, uh, it starts to get tricky for our human minds to grasp. And it's hard for me to grasp, let alone a nine-year-old. So I would say keep trying and keep having these discussions and keep finding answers to these questions within the Word of God, and you'll be doing a great job. Okay, good answer. Thank you, thank you. Question about baptism and the gospel. Viewer says, why did Paul detach baptism 
from the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.17. Uh, well, I understand where that question comes from. Uh, actually, Paul didn't separate uh, baptism from the gospel. So once again, our answer here is context. Uh, let's read 1 Corinthians 1.17 and uh, see where our viewer got this idea. Paul said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So it sounds like there's two different things there. In fact, some people use that as a proof text that baptism is not necessary. Uh, the gospel doesn't have baptism in it. Well, that doesn't jive well with the rest of the Bible. Uh, when Philip talked to the eunuch, he taught him about Jesus. And when he was done teaching him about Jesus, teaching him the gospel, the eunuch's first question was, can I be baptized? So he learned about it somewhere in the gospel story. Uh, so the rest of the Bible kind of answers our question for us. But this one is all a matter of context. If you just read what Paul was talking about, it makes perfect sense. Uh, and what he's writing about is divisions in the church. In Corinth, there were groups of people that had their favorite preacher, and they were dividing against each other. And Paul says in verse 12, uh, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas or Peter. Uh, so he says, we got these different camps, and you got your favorite preacher, and you're following them and dividing with each other. And so his question in verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Uh, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And his point is, no, you were baptized into Christ. Christ is the one that died for you. Christ is not divided. You're all Christians. You ought to all be together. And then he kind of goes off on a little tangent here, if you will. Uh, he says, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. Uh, so you can say that you were baptized into the name of Paul. Uh, now, notice they were all baptized. But he says, I'm glad I didn't personally baptize you, so you couldn't use that as an argument that you were baptized into the name of Paul. A little bit of exaggeration there, but that's what he's talking about. And then he comes back to our verse that we started with, and he says, Jesus didn't send me to baptize. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's not about being who baptizes you. You were baptized into Christ. He said, I taught the gospel, and you were all baptized, but don't follow me, follow Christ. So he didn't separate baptism from the gospel. What he did was separate himself uh, from Christ, from divisions in Christ because of his personality. So he was denying a personality cult and saying, just follow Jesus. That's who you were baptized into the name of. So I think that's the answer there. He didn't really separate the baptism from the gospel. Take a moment and uh, tell you about a good way to study the Bible. We answer a few questions each week and hopefully help you learn a little bit of your Bible. Uh, but folks who really profit from God's Word are the ones who spend some time in it. And we know that's hard to get started sometimes. Uh, a lot of folks start at January 1st and say, all right, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And they last a little while and then get kind of bogged down and pretty soon stop. Uh, that's one way to study the Bible, but maybe it's not the best way. 
uh, an organized lesson plan that takes you through different parts of the Bible might be a little more interesting, might help you get a habit of Bible study. And we've got some tools that do that. Uh, here's a set of lessons that start very basic. The first lesson's about the Old Testament, second lesson's about the New Testament. Shows you the two different parts of your Bible. Then our other lessons after that series uh, are a little more detailed and get you into uh, a little longer studies, uh, great ways to study the Bible and keep studying the Bible. We've also got some online courses that we're happy to tell you about. You can just log on to oneway.worldbibleschool.org and you'll find a way to register and get set up and uh, start getting lessons on your phone or PC, tablet, and uh, study the Bible that way. So, got lots of tools. All of them are great. Phone number or website at the bottom of the screen. Uh, all of them are absolutely free, too. We forget to mention that sometimes, but there's no cost uh, on the print editions that come to your home and the mail. We even pay the postage both ways. So, absolutely no investment from you except a little bit of your time. So, great way to get to know your Bible. Let us help you on that. All right, Toby. Yep. Next a question up. about uh, Jesus' last days, uh, or last hours. If Jesus knew he had to die on the cross for us to go to heaven, why did, uh, why did he ask that this cup be taken from me? Well, uh, this account is found in Luke chapter 22, so you can look there if you're uh, following along at home, Luke chapter 22. And uh, he describes this moment where Jesus is praying, there at the Mount of Olives, and it's a very this is the this is the moment his whole life has been about, and uh, we get this insight into this prayer that Jesus prays, and it is kind of curious. I'm going to read uh, the the section of scriptures, and then we'll show you one verse on the screen. Uh, verse 40 says, "When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall and enter into temptation." He withdrew about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, "Father, if you are willing." Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This was a very intense moment. Um, of course, Jesus knew that it was all leading up to this. But the intensity of it was not... You know, Jesus was going to endure physical pain. He was going to be deserted by his friends. It was going to be a very terrible uh, several set of hours for Jesus. Uh, he was going to be, you know, hanging from a Roman cross was one of the most agonizing ways to die physically. All of that, as bad as it was, I don't think that was what was concerning to Jesus. Um, I think what was most concerning to Jesus was... Um, for all eternity, he and the Father had been one. Even while he was on earth, he said, he and the Father are one. But here in this moment, uh, the Father's going to turn away from him. And that was something that he just was, an, I believe, an unbearable thought to him. And so I don't believe that Jesus was being disobedient. I don't think he was looking for a way out. He was, because he, he and the Father are so one, because he loves his Father so much, he was saying, Father... I know this is the plan. I know this is what you had in mind. I'm willing to do it. But if there's any other way that that we can do this without you and I having to be separated, then that's what I, I would. I'll do any other thing if it's possible. 
And then he says, not my will, but yours be done, which is the absolute epitome of Christ-likeness. He fully yields to the Father, knowing even that it would separate he and the Father. So uh, the reason that he asked why this cup be taken from him, because it was going to be extremely painful, not physically, but spiritually. It was going to damage a relationship that had always been one. Um, but he knew that that, uh, that was the way, that was the plan, and that was uh, what... God had planned uh, before it all started uh, that he and, and Jesus had worked this out. So I, I just think it's it's a very intense moment, and he didn't want his relationship the, with the Father ever to be separated, uh, and that's what would happen on the cross because of our sin. So hope that clarifies it just a little bit. All righty. Yeah, that's one of those phrases in the Bible that shows the humanity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a beautiful phrase, but yep. we forget sometimes. Yeah. Uh, okay, sure. I've got a simple question with a with a, a Bible has an obvious answer. Uh, who is a saint? A viewer wants to know. Um, usually, when we think about saints, we from a religious perspective, I would call it. We think about Catholic saints. We think about people who, because of their good deeds that they did for Christ or for Christianity or for people in general, they've been canonized or deemed worthy of being saints by the Catholic Church. Um, so most of us have heard the apostles' names, St. Peter, St. Paul. Um, we've heard of others like St. Francis and then more modern ones like St. Teresa. Uh, we've all heard these. These are, these are common names. But this is one of, uh, one of the reasons I love Know Your Bible, why it's so important to open your Bible, because the Bible does not share this same perspective when it comes to the definition of saints. Uh, so let's look at an excerpt here from uh, 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And this is the initial greeting from Paul in his letter to the Corinthian church. And this is to the whole church. And in this greeting, he defines what it means to be a saint. He says, someone who is sanctified in Christ Jesus and those who in every place call upon the name of Jesus. When the Bible says saints, it's referring to all Christians. It's referring to those who are sanctified by Christ. So based on that definition, uh, Steve and Toby and I are saints. And if you're a viewer at home and you've been sanctified and you are in Christ Jesus, you are also a saint. Um, but you can't get too excited because it's not through any great thing that you have done. And, and that's where the definition makes the difference. It's through your sanctification, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that makes you a saint. So when we look at saints from a religious perspective, we tend to think about what that person did, the great thing that that person did. Uh, but when we look at the biblical definition of a saint, what we end up doing is focusing on God's power and God's grace. So the simple definition of a saint are Christians who have been saved by the blood of Christ. That's the biblical definition. Okay, yep, good answer. Saint just uh, comes from the root word for holy, set apart. Yes. Uh, they've been set apart for God. So when Paul says they're those called to be saints, that you're called to be set apart. You belong to God. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, 
you'll find out that the people that he was calling saints uh, were far from perfect. That's right. <laughs> they were a mess, <laughs> to say the least. But he says, still says, even though with all their messes in their life, he said, you were called to be saints. Mm-hmm. He called to be set apart for God. So very good answer there, St. Jeffrey. Thank, thank you, St. Steve, St. <laughs> <Saint> Toby. <laughs> all right, a uh, question about... Uh, Killing Bible. Since the Bible says you shall not kill, is it a sin to euthanize a pet? Okay, I'm going to give you a couple answers on that or a couple of points. Uh, first of all, the term is really that you shall not murder. Uh, I know the old King James translation says kill. Most modern translations have murder, uh, which is obvious from the context if you read it, uh, because. Uh, God says there in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, if you read it that way. And then in just the next chapter, he starts saying, if people do this, break this rule, you kill them. Uh, So he advocates killing for a proper purpose. Uh, What he's commanding against is murder. Thou shalt not murder. And all of us know there's a difference between murder and killing. Uh, So context tells us that. Second thing is just thinking, just rational reasoning would show us it doesn't mean thou shalt not kill anything. Uh, If it really meant that, uh, you couldn't kill a mosquito that was bothering you. You you couldn't kill a scorpion that was in your shoe. Uh, You couldn't kill a rabid dog that was getting ready to attack you. Uh, And we all say, well, that doesn't make sense. There's some reasons for killing. Uh, So it doesn't mean thou shalt not kill. It means thou shalt not murder. Now, as far as euthanizing pets, I realize that's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, There comes a time, though, sometimes when that's the most compassionate thing to do. And we do it in the most uh, pain-free, compassionate way we can. But uh, dogs and other pets get to the point where uh, their quality of life is just very, very difficult. Uh, they can't go on and need to be freed from that pain. So I'd say, no, thou shalt not kill has nothing to do with that. Uh, euthanization is sometimes the most compassionate thing we can do for our pets. So uh, thou shalt not murder, but there are certain reasons for taking a life sometimes. Let me take a moment and invite you to visit a Church of Christ. Uh, If you listen to the introduction of this program, it says this program is produced by the Churches of Christ, uh, brought to you by the Churches of Christ. And that is a group of independent, uh, non-denominational churches that are autonomous. We don't have a headquarters or anything, uh, but we all just try to study the Bible and do the best we can. And that's why we have a program called Know Your Bible. And we like to thank a few of the folks each week that help us stay on the air. So this week, let me mention a couple uh, east of Wichita and Augusta uh, and uh, East Point Congregation in East Wichita are both groups of folks that uh, support this program and help us stay on the air. And we appreciate uh, them a whole lot. We thank them for their support and would recommend them if you're looking for a church home or just want to stop in and give them a thanks. Uh, drop in the Augusta Church of Christ for the East Point. Tell them you heard about them on Know Your Bible and uh, give them your thanks along with ours. Whatever viewing area you're in, uh, any of the 10 states that we're seen in, uh, you're probably close to a Church of Christ. So if you're looking for a church home, 
drop in and tell them you heard about them here. All right, Toby, what you got? Question about John the Baptist. Uh, the question is, after all John the Baptist had seen, why did he doubt that Jesus was the one? This question comes from Matthew 11.3. Let's look at it on the screen, give a little bit of context by looking at verses 2 through 5. Uh, now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go, tell, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. It seems kind of curious that John would ask this question. We know from John chapter 1, verse 29, that Jesus knew who, uh, John knew who Jesus was. He proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why is it here in Matthew chapter 11 where John is asking, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? couple of possibilities. First, uh, many people misunderstood what kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. Now, I don't know if John fell into this category or not, but some did. Some, there were people who wanted to make Jesus king, but they wanted a political king. They wanted an earthly kingdom, and that's not the kind of king that Jesus was. And so, could be a misunderstanding of what kind of king Jesus was. Uh, one other possibility is there was some confusion in Scripture about this idea of the coming one and the Messiah. And some people thought those were two different people, and Jesus is con uh, confirming that he is both the coming one and the Messiah. So it could be that second possibility. I think the third one is the one where I land. I think he's just, he's sitting in prison. He's about ready to, to be martyred for, for his work. He's lived his whole life. And I just think he's wanting that final confirmation. Jesus, I want to know, I want to be sure, because <laughs> I'm all in on this, that you are the one. Uh, I think he's just confirming what he always knew in his heart and what he's given his life to here at this moment in his life. So that's my explanation of it. But I think John knew who Jesus was and went to, went to his death, uh, having known that he fulfilled his purpose in life. All righty. All right. Uh, last question we have for this morning. Where did all the people come from when Adam and Eve only had three sons and no daughters? Good question. We get this one a lot. If you look in Genesis 4 and 5, we see three named children of Adam and Eve. We see Cain, Abel, and Seth. And the reason I say named, because if you continue to go down in that chapter, specifically Genesis 5 verse 4, it tells us that Adam had other sons and daughters. So we know that there weren't just three sons. Now this usually, uh, the, the follow-up question is, okay, then how do we all come from uh, one family? Uh, and you could consider that... Um, other uh, relationships that are now understood as incestuous, um, but are, were not considered sinful by God at that time. Um, but we know from the Bible that Adam lived a long time, 930 years. And during that time, he had an unspecified number of sons and daughters. So hopefully that answers your question in part. Yep, obviously, and people do. That favorite question is where do people come from? But yeah. Obviously, they married sisters and brothers and nieces and nephews and all that till things got going and yeah. God approved that he said populate the earth so they did get it going <laughs> somehow yep. all right we're out of time let's answer our trivia question what's the longest chapter in the Bible and it's almost dead to center in the Bible it's uh, Psalm 119 
and it's 176 verses long, so it'll take you a while to read through Psalm 119, but it is the longest chapter. A little bit of trivia there for you. We're glad you've been with us today and hope we get your question answered. We're going to come back next week and give you some more answers to your questions, and uh, we hope you're back with us then. Until then, we hope you have a great week. See you next week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.